got a little confused last week. I thought we had a little more uh, time before the Easter series started, but Easter series uh, starting today. Um, and our Easter series, the title is When We See Clearly. When We See Clearly. And we're going to be going through um, the parts of the Gospel of John beginning, beginning today. But um, it's the Easter series kind of fits where we are in, in the Acts series. It, you know, we've been talking about the persecution that's come upon the, the young church. We've talked about Stephen last week who was killed for his faith. And, you know, we were, we were asking the question, um, who hates someone who's teaching and living out God's love? And what we see from, from Christianity and from what the Bible teaches us from the gospel and what Jesus himself said is that the world hates him. The world hates him. And so we're going to explore today why the world would hate Jesus. And if the world hates Jesus, why would the world hate people who are just following the teachings of Jesus. You know, you look at the early church we looked at, and, you know, what were they doing that was so offensive? They were going out and they were healing people. They were helping people have a renewed sense of community and unity. Many people were, were being um, repentant of sins and, and, and wanting to, you know, be more loving towards one another. You would think that if you're a government leader that your main task is to keep the peace, wouldn't you want peaceful people like this? You don't hear the early church raising up an army. You don't hear the early church, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to you know, use political maneuverings to get a new high priest elected. You don't see any of that, none of that. And yet, just like Jesus, the world around them hates them. And we, we, you know, we come to, you know, this really perplexing question, why? And here's my, here's, here's my, my best guess, my best estimate of why. And it's because Jesus is actually addressing what the real problem is. He's actually saying all these things that you say you want, world, all these things that you say you want, each person, this is what's preventing it. And Jesus is confronting them on that. And he's presenting them with truth. And see, that's what's happening today. You know, the problem with the, the explosion of communications technology today has meant there's a lot more words interchanged than ever in history. Ever in history. We look back to about 1,000 years ago, not 1,000, about 500, 600 years ago, when the printing press was made. And they talked about how the printing press revolutionized the world. Because now you didn't have to copy things by hand. You could, you could put things out. You could just copy them, 
pretty rapidly for their time. How much more so in our day and age. But what's happened because of that, I think, has created this, I don't know if it's created or just revealed this thing about us. And that is that we are much more concerned with changing how we talk about problems rather than actually solving them. Everything out there is about language. Everything's out there. Oh, you know, you got to talk about it this way. You got to talk about it this way. You can't use this word. You can't use that word. You got to use this word. Everything is moving around, talking about how we talk about problems that you can't even really present a solution because if you present a solution, everybody's going to say, well, you didn't say it right. You didn't use the right words. You weren't sensitive enough to everyone around us. And so we just rename problems. We recategorize them. We come up with very convoluted explanations. We'll reshuffle. Sometimes we just ignore them like they're not there. It's been almost 40 days since Russia invaded the Ukraine. I can almost guarantee you that if you are not a news person, you might not have even thought about it. Might not have even thought about it this week. If you are a news person that watches news that has stories about it, okay, maybe you think about it. But it's funny. It's like we, we can easily ignore horrific events going on in our world simply because it's not on our Twitter feed. It's not showing up on the newscast. And in case you didn't know this, what's happening in the Ukraine is not the only serious problem facing the world today. That even if you are paying attention to that one, what about so many others? What about genocide that's taking place in different parts of Africa? Do we even know about this? What about the constant oppression of Christians in various countries? Do we even know about this? Because it's not on the news. Well, the world hates Jesus. And one of the reasons the world hates Jesus is Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to like reshuffle. I'm not coming to rename. I'm not coming to recategorize. I am coming to say, this is the problem. This what needs to be changed. And if it's not changed, the problems are only going to get worse. And unfortunately, the change often has to do with us. We come to this story we come to this story in John chapter 11, and we're not going to read the whole story, but um, if you came on Wednesday night, you got kind of the, everything leading up to this. But, but this is the, the Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. He resurrects his friend Lazarus from the dead. Um, and, you know, we, we, we saw how that story, what led up to that story about how Jesus is actually somewhere else. And word comes that Lazarus is, is ill. And so Lazarus, I mean, um, Jesus says, all right, 
and he says, but this isn't a sickness that leads to death, and he kind of waits a few days. If you didn't know the story, if you didn't know Jesus, you'd think like, Jesus, what is wrong with you? You are like a horrible friend. Your friend is sick, about to die, and you're like, eh, I'll get there when I get there. But no, Jesus is, is portrayed in this story like he is throughout the entire Gospel of John. He is always in control. His timing is perfect because it's God's timing. He doesn't go. And part of this is to reveal the limitations that some of his closest followers had placed on him. The limitation they had placed on him is, Jesus, we've seen you like make blind guys see. We've seen you cast demons out. We've seen you heal sick people. So we know you can do it. So you know what? Get here and do it. But what they don't believe and what's revealed in the story, what they don't believe is that Jesus has power over death. Jesus, it's pretty awesome. You got power over sickness. You got power, you know, over demons. But, you know, death, death is done. Death is final. That's it. Nobody has power over that. And Jesus is confronted along the way by by Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And in different ways, they're like expressing this, this issue with Jesus, this problem. If only you had been here. We're going to come back to this a little bit later. But I want you to understand that one of the things that we have in common with Mary, Martha, and the other people in this story is we also limit Jesus. We do it in a different way, but we do the same thing. We just let Jesus handle the things Jesus can handle. And then we take care of everything else. So we come to this story. Jesus has just been confronted by, by Mary. And not just Mary, but there's all of these people who've come from Jerusalem to support Mary and Martha and mourn with them. And they're all there and they were weeping. And in verse 38 it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come out and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew he, where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So there's this, this story we have, and, and I, I'm not going to go into the detail we went on Wednesday night, but let me just hit a few highlights in the text itself. When it's talking about Jesus being deeply moved, that, that Greek verb actually has the hint that he is angry. He's upset. And what is he upset about? You know, there's a lot of discussion about what he's upset about. Um, um, some people, you know, think he's upset about the disbelief that, that his closest followers and, and these other people have. Some people might think it says in uh, verse 37 that some of them had just said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Some people think Jesus is upset because he's, he's seen and he's experiencing the consequences of sin. And he sees this is what happens. It leads to this despair, this finality of death. There is no hope. But make no mistake, deeply moved doesn't mean he's kind of tearing up. He's angry. And it says again, because just a few verses earlier, the same thing had happened. And Martha, again, just a few verses earlier, Martha had said, I believe you, Jesus. I believe you are the Christ. But again, what she felt was her full, wholehearted belief in Jesus was limited. She still didn't believe Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead. And by the way, I'm not faulting her. I mean, if one of you came up to me and said, you could bring somebody back from the dead, I'm not believing you. Sorry. And yet, she had just made this great statement that if you didn't read the rest of the story, you might think, wow, this is a great statement of faith. It is in a way. And I'm not sure what she thought Jesus was going to do when she said, I believe in you. 
Maybe she thought he was going to stand in front of the tomb and make this great speech to everybody. And everybody would go like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for coming. You know, you made Lazarus' death worth it because now we're all inspired to go do wonderful things. Maybe that's what she thought. I don't know. But she apparently did not think he was going to say, roll that stone out of the way. But they, she says it. She doesn't really believe who Jesus is. She has a limited version of who Jesus is. But the stone is still moved. And then Lazarus is called out by Jesus. One of the main points of this story, if not the main point, is that Jesus is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. Not most, not some, all. He is Lord of all, even life and death. He can can overcome death and he can give life. Now I know in our modern world, our our world that, that, you know, we live in the world that is largely, especially in the first world, it's largely, you know, we benefit from, you know, progress in science and all of that. And it's wonderful, it's great. But in that world, we read stuff like this and we go, ah, you know, can we smooth that out so it connects better with the culture today? Can we leave out these parts that are like, come on, man, you know, supernatural stuff, it doesn't happen. Uh, No, uh, we can't. In fact, let me just give you a little side thing over here. I love science. I love the fact of, you know, the progress we made. You know, I think I have, I turned 58 yesterday, so I think I have 142 more, I mean, I'm sorry, 92 more years to live. So I'm hoping that all the mysteries of science by the time I get to 150 are solved, right? And I know them. I would love to, you know, know more and more about all these mysteries. I love it. And understand, the more we understand the natural world, we need a natural world because that helps us see the power and the wonder and the beauty of the supernatural. The problem with believing in science and the natural world is not believing in science and the natural world, it's believing that that's all there is. That there is nothing beyond this existence. That there is no power in the universe that can contradict the power of the universe. And Christianity, the Bible, both from the Hebrew scriptures to the New Testament, says otherwise. There is one, and his name is Jesus. Mary, Martha, the disciples, the crowd that had all seen Jesus do these amazing things still limited him. He wasn't Lord of all. 
And let me just tell you, you might go, well, okay, what's the problem with that? Here's the problem with that. If you don't believe Jesus is Lord of all, then he cannot be Lord of all you are. And if he's not Lord of all you are, he is not Lord. So many Christians have kind of like, it's like they've made this little peace treaty with God. They've negotiated their salvation. All right, Jesus, yeah, I want you to be Lord. I want you to save me. Um, These are the areas that you can be responsible for, and these will be mine. And, you know, once in a while, I might need some help on my side, and I'll ask you, but otherwise, just kind of leave me alone. I got it. And it's going to be different things for different people. Some people, it's going to be, you know, this is my job. Let me do my job. But you can be Lord of everything outside my job. These are my coworkers, my relationship with my coworkers. Just let me handle that. You handle some of these other things, like my family, because they're kind of crazy. So help me with my family, but not with my coworkers. Or vice versa. We, you know, can be Lord of some things, but, you know, some of my finances, you know the part about the income, I want you to be Lord of. But the spending part, let me handle the spending part. You handle how it comes. I will handle how it goes. We all have our things. But when we really embrace that Jesus is Lord of all, when we really embrace that Jesus is Lord of all, we really embrace he is Lord of all who we are. There's, there's parallels between this story and the story that's coming when Jesus is crucified and resurrects. And one of those is, is what we read in verse 37. If you remember when Jesus is being crucified, you know, people are saying, save yourself, Jesus, come on. Can't even save yourself. Jesus is, is not here to put on a magic show whenever we demand. Come on, God, prove yourself to me today. Show me something today. No. He's there to do the Father's will. He's there to reveal who God is. Who God is. He is both the life giver and in this case, the life returner. But there's going to be this, this other thing that we see on the cross. And it's something that a lot of times the first time we hear this, we don't know what to do with it. Okay? We don't know what to do with it when we first hear it. And maybe this isn't the first time you've heard it and you've really thought about it. But if you've heard this before and you've not really thought about it, you need to think about this. This needs to be something that you think about. I would encourage you to think about it throughout the entire Easter season. I would encourage you to think about it beyond that. I would encourage you to study and read on this. And it is this, that the ultimate power of God, that he is, that he is power over all, 
this power that's revealed here in bringing Lazarus back from the dead, that that power is demonstrated in its true depth and in the fullest way we can know in the humility and love displayed on the cross. If you do not understand this about Christianity, you do not really understand Christianity. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. There's a lot of Christians who don't think about these things. But if you want to understand Christianity, you have to understand that the ultimate revelation of God is the Son of God dying on a cross. And if that if that's the first time you're hearing it and you're just like, yeah, okay, stop. Especially if you're a Christian. Stop. Think about what that means. Think about that, what that means about how we then would be Christ-like in our own lives. About how we would live. About what it means to be his church. I don't have time to unpack it all today. I'm just dropping a little truth bomb on you, and you can sort it out later. I wouldn't mind talking to you about it if you, if you really have questions like, you know, what does that mean? Or I, I, what are the implications? And one of the reasons the world hates Jesus is because the world does not respect Powerful people who do not use power the way that they want them to. The world does not respect them. In fact, the world is threatened by them. I used to use a kind of mundane example when I taught college. And I would be like, you know, if, if, if you went to a, um, a school like where your basketball team was just never won. It was embarrassing. You know, everybody would go to the game and you just knew, like, how much are we going to lose by today? That's all you thought. And then this transfer student comes in and, you know, he's like seven feet tall and he's super athletic. You see him at the park. He's shooting, you know, 20 feet away, no problem, dunking, playing defense, knows everything. And everybody's like... Finally, finally. And people go, hey, are you going to try to, no, no, it's not my thing. Coach begging them, teachers, everybody. And then you go to the next game, and there's seven-foot dude sitting in the stands, and, you know, he's got the megaphone with raw on it, and he's cheering what would everybody else think about this guy? You know. You know what you would think as your team is getting beaten again by a lot and embarrassed. It's a mundane example, but you know what? There's bigger examples, real examples. If powerful people don't use power the way you want you don't respect them. In fact, you would rather just them not be there. Because you're afraid. 
You're afraid either they're not going to use it and help you, or you're afraid if they end up do if they end up using it at some point, they don't want. They're not going to help you. They're not on your side. People might have even rationalized it. They might have gone like, look at this Jesus. If this Jesus would actually kind of step up, you know, if he would kind of step up, he'd join us. Look, if he had us helping him promote his healing crusades, how many more people would come? How many more people would be healed? If he had all of our scribes writing down all his words and distributing them to everybody else, how much better it would be for Jesus. Come on, Jesus, join our team. But no, they don't understand that the revelation of God, as John calls it in the gospel, the glorification of God, it's going to happen on the cross. And one of the commentaries that I read kind of said this well, and it said that what Jesus is doing here and the way this story is told and the way it fits in the Gospel of John is it helps like complete what Jesus' ministry is, what he came to do. You see, because there's a lot of Christians who buy into Christianity is Jesus giving us life after death. Life after death. So, you know, we live this life, we try to be obedient, we try to be grateful to God, uh, because, you know, we're going to have life after death. But what this commentary said is the way this story is told and what Jesus has, has said in other places in this gospel, he didn't come just to give us life after death. He came to give us life before death. Real living, real life right now. One of the reasons... One of the reasons the world hates God, the world hates Jesus, is because when they're confronted by Jesus, they're confronted by real life, real living. And they have to admit, or they have to at least be confronted with the idea that they're not. Earlier in John John 3, it talks about how Jesus comes in and he's, he's, he's the light that comes into the world, shines into the darkness. The darkness can't stand it. We don't want Jesus as Lord of all if we are wanting to hold on to whatever control we think we have. You see, there's another thing that Jesus is doing here. And it's another reason the world hates Jesus. Jesus is bringing a new definition of leadership and power. If you go to verse 48, it, it, on one hand, you might, if you think the best about the, the priest and, um, and the other religious leaders here on the Sanhedrin, if you thought the best about them, you might think, you know what? Yeah, they're wrong about Jesus, but you know what? They just care about the nation. They don't want the Romans to come down on them and, you know, wipe them all out. 
But look in verse 48. Look at the first thing they say they're concerned about. It says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place. Take away our position. Take away our power. Take away our authority. These religious leaders aren't, yeah, we're concerned about the people. But the first thing they're talking about is losing their position, their power. Jesus is bringing a new definition of leadership and power, and even though they don't understand it, even though they don't understand it, they know this. They know that they're going to lose either way. You've heard about win-win scenarios. For the religious leaders who refuse to accept Jesus, it's a lose-lose scenario because either Jesus is going to be exactly who they think he is. They think he's just taking his time and at some point he's going to reveal his true colors and he's going to be just like them and he's going to take power. That's what they think. And they know that if that happens, they're not going to share power. They know if that happens, Jesus is going to do what they would do. It's what a lot of like, like CEOs do when they take over, and sadly, even some pastors do. They come in and they just clean house. They bring in their own people. They know that. They're going to lose. So if Jesus wins, they lose. If Jesus is just another one of these guys who has this little following, uprising, Romans come in, wipe you out, they're going to lose that way too because it was their job to control people like Jesus. They're going to lose either way. So really the only choice they have, which for most of them is not a choice, would be let's follow Jesus. So it's lose, lose, follow Jesus. They don't want to follow Jesus. They need to wipe him out. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing a new definition of leadership, a new definition of power, and it is most fully revealed on the cross. It is most fully revealed in how Jesus faces his own death. And the religious leaders, I don't know how much they really understand the truth of the message, but I think they understand better than anyone else the ramifications of it. They understand that Jesus isn't just coming along teaching a new ethic, that he's not coming along just restoring an old covenant, that these are radical claims that leadership now is not on how strong you are or how, you know, how talented you are or how rich you are, but leadership is through love and grace and sacrifice and service to everyone, including the hated Romans. 
It's not the message people want to hear. People who maybe feel that they're oppressed because this, this empire has come in, taken over. Their people are everywhere. They're dominating their lives. Jesus is saying, no, there's another way. And this is the way. And so they create this dilemma. They, they create this situation like they're backed in the corner. So you know what? We're backed in the corner. What else can we do? Well, it's better for one man to die than everyone. So let's just get rid of Jesus. But make no mistake that behind the rationalization, underneath the rationalization, is this hatred for Jesus and everything that he stands for. But the other part that we see here, the other part that we see here, the way that John tells the story, and you have to kind of jump down to near the end of it, Verse 54 says, Now therefore no longer, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness. At first it may, you might go like, oh, okay, so Jesus just ran away. It's like, no. Nope, because we know what's going to happen. This is all happening within a week to ten days of the crucifixion. We know what's happening. Jesus has, has backed off like he did multiple times in the Gospel of John. Some people forget this. When Jesus feeds the thousands, 5,000 men plus how many other people, when he miraculously feeds them, a lot of people forget what happens after that. We stop when we see all the 12 baskets because, you know, stop talking about food, story must be over. no. The people said, we want to make him king. They so wanted to force him to be king that he took off. Because it wasn't the right time and it wasn't the right idea. We go all the way back to the beginning of John. When it, he's at the wedding feast and his mom is trying to get him to kind of show everybody you know, his power and show that, you know, kind of he's, he's the Messiah. Jesus is like, no, it's not time. He eventually does what she asks, but he does it kind of privately. Only his followers and some of the servants know what he did. No one else knew. It's his, his time. And so here he's like, it's my time. It's God's time. I'm going to pull back. And at the right time, I'm going to go right back into that city. And that's what he does. John will talk about it next week. And Jesus is not only concerned just about the religious leaders. In fact... I have a theory, 
that he's less concerned about the religious leaders than he is concerned about his own followers. We already have evidence of at least one follower who thought it was his job to save Jesus from himself. You know who we're talking about? Name rhymes with Peter, right? He's going to save Jesus from himself. Jesus, I'm here to save you from the cross. I'm pretty sure Peter wasn't the only one. I'm pretty sure that that there were conversations among some of Jesus' followers, even his closest followers, of saying, look, those religious leaders are really serious. We need to do something. Jesus won't listen. They could very well have done, you know, we just sang, a mighty fortress is our God. And the only reason we can sing that song is because the guy who wrote it got kidnapped by people trying to protect him. Martin Luther. He got kidnapped and taken away so he, you know, he didn't face the fate of a lot of other um, reformers. Jesus could very well have been afraid of his own followers. Look, they, they didn't even believe he had power over death. They were going to try to save him. And then we see the words of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, Jesus is in control of the entire situation. He, he even knows, you know, his enemies' plots against him. But Caiaphas speaks words and he doesn't even know what they really mean. That's what John tells us. He says he didn't say this of his own accord. He didn't really even know all that he was saying when he said, one man must die for the nation. John tells, him, t- tells us, no, so much more in that than Caiaphas even knew. That Jesus would die not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. And so Jesus... Lord of all, in control, even here. And the world hates him. And I return to this, that, that if this is Jesus' definition of leadership and power, it even makes it more baffling why the world would hate him. If his definition of leadership and power is is enmeshed and saturated with God's love and grace and service and humility and sacrifice, why? Why would, would the world hate him so much? And again, it's because it gets at the very heart of who we are. It gets at the very heart of what, if we really want to embrace the joy, if we really want to know the faith and the confidence and the purpose that comes with being a follower of Christ, we have to address this same thing in our own lives. 
And that, that forces us to do one of two things. If we understand and believe the claims of Jesus, we must either kneel before him as Lord, kneel before him as Lord, or try to silence him in whatever way we can. If you know, if you really believe, and you understand what Jesus is saying, if you really understand what he says, this is the problem with you and your life. This is, in fact, not just you and your life, but it is the problem with the entire world. If there's any hope for the world, this is what needs to change. If there's any hope for you, this is what needs to change. And you know it, and that message is there constantly before you. You have to do something with it. And you will either embrace Jesus as Lord, or you will have to find a way to silence. In modern times, how do we silence? Well, we don't silence like they did back then when they, you know, crucified Jesus and tried to silence him. Oh, we do it by just not listening, not paying attention. We do it by kind of whenever one of our Christian friends starts talking Christian talk, we make sure we quickly shift it to, hey, how about them Dodgers or some other topic? So we don't have to talk about Jesus too much because he's constantly right there revealing what needs to take place in our lives. It's understandable that the world hates Jesus. I think it's a problem, and it's a subtle problem, that I think in church there's a lot of Christians that if they fully understand who Jesus is, that they would hate him too. They like their version of Jesus. They like the version of Jesus that they've kind of pieced together. But if they see Jesus, if they understand Jesus in his fullness, if they understand his message, if they're honest, they'll say they hate him. I'm not going to tell you our church gets everything right because we don't. But one thing that we want to do, I know every time John preaches and every time we talk, you know, and uh, on Wednesdays and go over the message that's coming, we want to give you truth, as much truth as our brains can gather from God's word and present it to you as fully as possible and hope that that truth is encouraging you and building you up and helping you to grow, but also that that truth is helping you understand more fully who Jesus is, what the demands of the gospel are, and it's confronting those areas in your lives in the same way it's confronted them in our lives. One of the big differences between us and you is that God convicts us <laughs> when we're going through the word before we bring it to you. It's God's truth. It's fully who Jesus is. Will you kneel before him as Lord or 
try to silence him from speaking truth into your life. 